It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Welcome to another edition of Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in or downloading or whatever the best term is. We have a great guest this week. Phil Libin is here. He's the founder of Evernote, the note-taking app that became a unicorn way back in 2010 before the term unicorn was even really a thing. He's just launched a new company called All Turtles, which is all about riding the next big wave in technology. Artificial intelligence. Soon, it's going to be everywhere. Um, anyhow, Phil is a thoroughly human tech tycoon, if I can call him that, and he has some great insights from 20 years in the startup trenches. I think you'll really enjoy it. Without further ado. Uh, yeah, you're in uh, All Turtles Galactic headquarters right now in San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> we're a, uh, an AI startup studio. We're launching in San Francisco, Tokyo, and Paris uh, right off the bat. And I so think, is this I effectively like, kind of like an accelerator? Well, I think incubators and accelerators, you have to ask like, well, what are, you, what are you incubating? What are you accelerating? And those are trying to make companies. And what we're doing is we're saying we don't really care about companies. Like we, we actually think that part of what's wrong with Silicon Valley is this like fetish around companies. We want to make products. We're a product first. And some of those products become companies and others don't. And like, that's fine. We want to focus on having really talented product people making products without forcing them to like go through the motions of worrying about company stuff before they've like made their products. So we're not necessarily early stage. Like we see ourselves as a studio where we make stuff in the same way that like HBO does or Netflix does. Like those aren't incubators or accelerators. Yeah, a lot of great things come out of them, but they make and distribute stuff. We do the same thing instead of instead of making TV shows, we make products. So you'd be like a Hollywood studio and you're hoping to produce a lot of blockbuster products like chatbots or what? Well, you know, Blockbuster is actually an interesting, an interesting uh, thing. Uh, most of the money in, in the, the new studio model isn't actually aimed at, at Blockbusters, right? It's really more like these like medium-sized shows that have like a, a loyal viewership and a good audience. And actually the, the, the old-style Hollywood system like that existed like in the 80s and 90s where they, all, all, they were all geared towards giant Blockbusters, those were pretty crappy businesses. Like all of those studios were constantly going bankrupt every few years. Um, what we were actually trying to do is we're not focusing on the Blockbusters, because uh, companies like we're not trying to make decacorns like we're not asking ourselves before we start working on something we don't ask could this be 10 billion dollars which is what every vc asks we don't we don't ask that we don't care a because there's lots of really worthwhile products that 
that shouldn't be $10 billion or a billion dollars. There's plenty of things that maybe they're 100 million, and that's still a great outcome if it's good for the world and it's good for the founders. And so we want to build a lot of those. But B, because it's impossible to predict ahead of time what the $10 billion outcome is going to be. So we actually think we'll have just as many $10 billion outcomes, which is to say very few, that everyone else has. But sometimes it'll happen, but we don't, we don't try to anticipate, we don't try to filter for those. We just want to build worthwhile things. So you've been at this now for 20 years. Yeah, at least, I think. Perhaps it's worth stepping back and just going through a potted history of Phil Libin. Because you're actually, you're from Leningrad, correct? Yeah, back then it was called Leningrad. Yeah, St. Petersburg now in Russia. And is, is Libin short for, was that truncated from Libinsky or something? Or I don't know. I, I, you know, it's been Libin for at least a couple of generations. Okay. Uh, so I don't know. It, it feels like it was something else before, but I have no idea. I'm deeply incurious about my own family and background, so I've never actually bothered to ask. But it's been living as long as at least my father's been alive. So when did you came here from the, what was then the USSR in? 1979. I remember watching on our little black and white TV with my dad. Right when we got to the country, I remember watching the dream team, the, the you know, the 80s Olympics when the, the US hockey team beat oh, the Russians. Yes. That, was like, that was like one of my first memories in the US as we watched that live from our like little, tiny little rat-infested apartment in, in Brooklyn with a little black and white TV. And were you, uh, whose side were you on that? Ah, so that's the thing. So I, I fundamentally, I was born without the gene that makes me care about sports balls. So like I just don't understand anything having to do with sports at all. But I remember walking into the room and my dad was watching this TV and then, you know, the game ended and he was, che- he was, he was really, really excited. And he said, we won, we won. And I, it was, you know, it was the Soviets playing the U.S. And I was a little bit confused. I'm like, who, who's we? And he's like, the Americans, of course. And it was like, it was actually my first patriotic moment. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess we just got here, but I guess now we're the Americans. And like, that actually felt pretty good. All right, we've switched sides. Yeah. So you grew up in the Bronx? In, you know, a pretty rough neighborhood, but it didn't matter since I was such a computer nerd. I just sat in my room and played around with my various computers and then went to school in Boston and then moved to, started a couple of companies there and then um, moved to California for Evernote about 10 years ago. And you, had, you experienced the delights of government cheese growing up, is that right? Yeah, so my parents uh, in the Soviet Union were both classical musicians. You know, confer some amount of social status over there. It was kind of a prestigious thing, didn't make any money, but it was at least prestigious. And then when they moved here, they couldn't get jobs as musicians. You know, they were, didn't speak English and they were in their mid-30s. And so they wound up taking a series of you know, relatively menial jobs just to get by and then kind of work their way up into the middle class. But we were always fairly poor growing up. You know, we were on welfare. We got the government cheese, um, you know, for a few years. Uh, never, like, to the point where I ever felt deprived. Like, we always had food to eat. But yeah, it was, it was definitely a lower class, then going to lower middle class, then kind of going to middle class upbringing. And so how old were you when you started your first company? Um, well, I started my first company in high school, so I must have been 16. A friend of mine and I started this company where we bought uh, computer parts. We ordered PC parts from Taiwan from like a mail order catalog, and we assembled it ourselves, and we resold the PCs to uh, like local businesses. And I sold that company for $500. That was my first exit. I got like $500? 500 bucks. It was like 500 big ones. Wow. Like at 16, that, you must have been... I was set. That was like a good... That was like a, that was like a solid <laughs> sum. Like the way I remember thinking about it, I'm like, this is how much money I would make all summer working at Carvel Ice Cream. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then after college, you started your first Yeah, my of- first sort of real company was yeah, Engine 5, which we started in 1997. And I spoke uh, a few weeks ago, we had Marco Zappacosta on from Thumbtack. Yeah. And he's great. He talked about, 
growing up in an entrepreneurial family, his parents started Logitech, etc. And he talked about how important that was to actually see that it was possible, especially because he kept getting all these no's and kept running into walls and it looked like it was going to be impossible. Did your upbringing kind of give you something that made you think that you could actually do this? Because, I mean, you're on number five. Well, if you count the co- computer yeah. company, number five. Yeah, if you, let's not count the computer one, so let's say number four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, God, no. No, I was totally unprepared. Uh, my family was anti-entrepreneurial. You know how some people say, like, oh, and I'm, I'm the first person in my family to ever, like, go to college? I'm the first person in my family going back many generations to, like, not finish college. Like, everyone in my family is, like, a classically trained musician or a PhD scientist or, you know, a poet or a chess master or something like that. Like it's a very, uh, it is a very like brain and talent heavy family. I am like, I am the black sheep. Like I am the person that just like couldn't, couldn't get my together enough. So I had to, you know, so start you just companies. had to found and sell a bunch of successful companies. Well, I mean, it, it honestly, like, uh, it felt like failing for a long time. It felt to me like I was doing this because I couldn't keep a respectable job. I was probably on company number three before I realized, like, hey, this is actually a somewhat reputable way to, like, make a living. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm the opposite of, uh, of uh, growing up in an entrepreneurial household. Right. And so the first one was Engine 5, and that basically made websites for companies? Is that yeah, we made, um, that was, we did that in 1997, which was the, the really the start of the first dot-com bubble. We made websites. We, we focused on e-commerce. We made some of the very first e-commerce uh, stores uh, back when that was, that was like non-trivial to like make something that you can like put stuff in a shopping cart and check out. So we made a bunch of those for like e-toys and Nokia and things like that. But yeah, those were those were good days. I remember uh, Sun Microsystems at that point. Uh, their slogan was uh, "Sun." We put the dot in dot com. Uh, and uh, they, they, they ran TV ads saying we put the dot in dot com, and we immediately made T-shirts that say Engine Five. We put the colon in HTTP colon slash slash. But it didn't catch That's on. That's a good much. nerd joke, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you sold that company. Sold it to Vignette, which was a big uh, public company in Austin, Texas, that made content management software. Twenty-five million or something like that. Twenty-six or something like that. Yeah, which was great. Uh, we never had any money before then. We didn't have investors, so it was just like. It was just us because we didn't. We literally, when we started Engine Five, we didn't know that investors existed. I mean, I knew about stockbrokers. <laughs> I didn't know that there were like these people that would give you money to start a company. We were all just engineers. You know, we were profitable from day one. We basically like brought our computers to an office and started working, and people started paying us because back then that was easy. And uh, so we, when we sold it, uh, twenty-six million. Yeah, it was just us, and so it was the first time any of us, you know, had it seen any money. It was a worthwhile experience. And then you started another company. Started our second company a month after September 11th. So it was October 11th of 2001 is when we started the second company. It felt like we wanted to do something much more substantive. You know, we kind of looked back on all the stuff we'd done up until then. And we were like, yeah, e-commerce and recommendations. Like, all of it is so trivial. Like, there's got to be something more important in life after September 11th. We teamed up with this... uh, mad scientist, like brilliant, crazy, entrepreneurial MIT professor, uh, Sylvia McCauley, and we started uh, Core Street, which was a government security cryptography uh, company. We wanted to like change the way that everyone thought about security and uh, ran that for about seven years, and then sold that company as well. And then that brings you to Evernote. Yeah, and then after that, uh, we were sitting around and thinking, uh, 
well, what are we going to do next? A, a lot of the same people. So a lot of this is yeah. So you kind of traveled with your team, basically. Yeah, and it kind of grew a little bit. You know, every company, like we try to bring the best people from the previous one. You know, a few people burn out. You know, a few new people get added. So yeah, uh, but similar team. So we sat around and we kind of said, okay, like what lessons did we learn from the first two companies and what do we want to do now? And uh, what we'd never done before is build something for ourselves. So Evernote has uh, an interesting history. There was two teams that, that, that joined forces in 2007. So uh, I'd made, I'd had a team that was right after Core Street uh, where we decided to work on human memory extension. We wanted to make a, a, an external brain. You know, all of us want to feel smarter, more productive. The current productivity tools hadn't changed, you know, typewriters, inside of a computer. It was like Microsoft Office, that kind of stuff. And we thought, okay, there's got to be something better. So we started thinking about how do we improve like human memory, human cognition? How do we actually make like modern productivity stuff? And we wanted to do something on mobile. We were like, you know, we've been building apps for phones for years, but we finally had the insight that like, okay, now it's going to go mainstream. Like this is when it's actually going to make sense. Like AI today. Yeah, like AI today. Like that was, that was the very strong feeling. So we were in Boston. There was another team in California that was headed up by Stepan Pachikov, who was this brilliant uh, Russian-American scientist, inventor, entrepreneur. And he had his team. And his team was actually the team that way back in like the late 80s, Apple like brought over to do the Apple Newton. The real nerds remember the Apple Newton. It was like the first yeah. tablet. It, it was like, like the pre, pre-Palm Pilot. Yeah, it had like handwriting recognition. It was like amazingly cool and advanced for its time. Stepan and his team had been here working on like basically, to them, they were working on like version 5.0 of what they tried to do with the Newton. And then we, Stepan and I met over at this really bad sushi restaurant, the Cupertino, and then just decided, let's just like join forces and do this together. It wasn't so, really bad sushi, was it? As in like, no, no, it was gastrointestinal just, issues. Well, yeah, no, it was just, it was just uninspired. Mm, but for sushi, that's like the worst sin. It was, it is like, it was like true. uninspired conveyor belt sushi, but it was a great conversation. And, uh, yeah, so we came together in 07 and the idea was just, um, we want to make you smarter. We want to be, we want to make the modern version of tools that make you smarter, more productive, and thereby happier. We were just lucky. We got a lot of the timing right, and, and it took off. I remember reading the headlines. Evernote was one of the first unicorns of the mobile era. Yeah, I think, I think like when the word unicorn got coined, we were like, yeah, we were one, it was us and maybe Dropbox or something. That was, yeah. And it was, I always remember thinking of what a stupid you know, idea this was, but yeah. <laughs> what worked? Why, why was it, how much of it was just luck? I mean, a lot of it is luck. There's plenty of people in companies that like are just as smart and worked harder and like just doesn't catch on. So a ton of it was luck and, and primarily, you know, it's timing is the other thing. So we, we got the timing right. And I think we were prepared to take advantage of the luck and the timing when it happened. And so we moved quickly as we realized like, oh man, this, this was a good break. Now let's like jump on this. So like, I remember we had our first product, this is like Windows uh, and Mac desktop, you know, tool. And we were playing around with things on phones, but, but the iPhone had just come out, but there was no apps on it yet. Because the first year there was no apps on the iPhone. I remember getting a call from an executive at Apple and, uh, they're like, so, uh, you know, we really like the, your, your product on the Mac. A bunch of people use it. And uh, we're wondering if you want to, like, participate in this new thing we're doing uh, for the iPhone. And I'm like, yeah, definitely. What, what, do, you, what do you got? And uh, I said, well, we were thinking of, like, making a store for applications on the iPhone. We're thinking of, like, calling it an app store. And, uh, you know, we'll let developers make apps for the phone. And, uh, you know, we'd like you to be on there at, at, at launch day. Uh, is that something you'd be interested in developing? And I'm like, yes, this is definitely something you'd be interested in developing. 
when do you need to buy? And they were like, like, we're going to launch it next Thursday. And it was like, you know, Tuesday. So I'm like, oh, okay, eight days. Yeah, we can do that. So then, you know, we didn't sleep for eight days. I mean, like wrote the first version of Evernote. Uh, Did you realize then with the, uh, what the App Store could be? Yeah, I mean... We thought that it was going to be as big as it got. We really did. Now, we could have been totally wrong. So it sounded like, it sounded like we were like geniuses for, for thinking it. But yeah, like we, like the potential to me at least was like, I was very, very highly confident. Now, I've been highly confident about all sorts of stuff that didn't come to pass. But in this particular case, I was like highly confident that it worked out exactly like we thought. You guys moved out here. To yeah. start that, you moved out here. From yeah, so Boston. I moved the whole team from Boston to here. And then we, we hooked up with Stepan's team and we started this company. And then we almost went out of business like three times because... We kept running out of money, uh, and fundraising was terrible. See, but, see I read that so, you guys, re- I mean, you guys raised a boatload of money. I think almost $400 million total. Yeah. But you almost went out of business? The first $5 million took more work than the other 395. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. In the beginning, it was super hard. Well, neither of us was really very good at raising money. I had raised some money for my second company, but that was in Boston. It doesn't count. It doesn't count for, <laughs> for, for Silicon Valley. It doesn't count. We just had a terrible pitch. You know, we would come into a VC and I would say, I am Phil Libin and, you know, you never heard of me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're making this software that's going to let you write stuff down. It's an extension of your brain. It's going to be great. Yeah, and we're going to give it away for free. And then they would be like, oh, so who's your competition? And I would say, like, well, every computer or phone or PDA <laughs> that's ever come out already has a pretty good free note-taking app on it. So I guess it's a sort of everyone is our competition already. It wasn't the best pitch. No, no one gave us money uh, here in Silicon Valley, so we wound up raising money. Well, Stepan and I had both sold companies before, so we were able to support, you know, fund it a little bit ourselves, and we had friends and family, so it was literally a lot of friends and family. And then um, we got some angel investors, but all of our, our initial money all came from uh, like unconventional sources. So we had money from Docomo, which is the big Japanese telecom company. We had money from these like Alberta oil barons. Uh, How do you find these people? Just, you know... Desperation? Well, you, yeah. I mean, you just look. You, Wait, just look. you Google them? Uh, well, a lot of them came to us because they were all Evernote users to some point. We, we got the product. We got a, a product out pretty early. and So you kind of found some fanboys, yeah, so, so to speak. It, actually, all of the money we took, almost $400 million, we never took a penny from someone who wasn't an Evernote fan. Even the late-stage institutional money... Everyone was like a huge, a giant user first and a big fan first. So we actually never took money from someone who wasn't in love with the product. Uh, but yeah, but definitely, if it wasn't for that, we would never have gotten started because all of our early money only like it was only people who like saw uh, and yeah. saw the utility of it. Yeah, and time. I didn't have to explain it to them. Like they they just grokked it immediately because I was terrible at explaining it. And then, but then I got a little bit better at it. But you know, yeah. Was there one key person or one key backer in their, those early days that kept you from folding? Yeah, well, there's, you know, we almost went out of business. It was, I think it was like October of 2008. It was fall of 2008. And uh, we had been working to raise $10 million. We had a term sheet. But then because we had this complicated, weird structure, because we merged two companies and everything, we should never do that again, just for the complexity's sake. We'll just start over. It took about six months of due diligence to, like, get all the legal stuff, like, ironed out. So we were in due diligence for six months. But it was going to be fine because, you know, we were going to get $10 million on the other side of it. It was a European investor. And uh, on the day that we were supposed to close, the day we were supposed to close and get $10 million was the day that, like, the markets just collapsed. I think, like, Merrill Lynch went out of business and, like, the, you know, the markets were down. This was, like, the giant meltdown. This was in, in the midst of the market meltdown. At the heart of the market meltdown. And the day we were going to close was the worst day of it. And on closing day, the investor said, called me up and said, we just lost 60% of our portfolio value. We have to, we we're pulling out of the, of the investment. 
you know, it was just like sheer panic, right? Because we had, at this point, we had like three weeks of cash left in the bank. You know, I stayed up. I called everyone I knew. Like, no one would even like take phone calls. No, no one would like respond to any emails, take any phone calls. Sequoia had just sent out the RIP Good Times memo of 2008 that like told all their companies like, you're never going to raise money again. It was like, it was the worst of the meltdown. And like, and we had three weeks of cash left. So I scrambled for a week, made zero headway. Meantime, like all of my personal portfolio was like down to basically zero. So it was just like, it was Bad a times. traumatic experience. And then a week later, I remember sitting there. It was like 3 a.m. And uh, I remember deciding like, okay, we've got two weeks of cash left tomorrow. And I'm going to go to sleep now. And then tomorrow I have to go to the office and shut down the company. Because you, know, you can't go to zero. You have to like pay some final bills. Because how many wanna... people did you have at that point? 20-ish. Right. Maybe like 25. So it was already like significant, right? But, I, you know, I'm like, all right, I have to go tell people like this is the last paycheck and you know, we're done. I'm sorry. And I, and I, like, I was ready to do it. Like I was totally prepared. Like, I'm going to go to sleep, going to wake up. Gonna... And I remember thinking, this is what it must feel like to be an adult. Like this is my first like adult moment. And I remember thinking like, this sucks. Like after this, I'm never being an adult it sucks again. To be, it sucks to be a grown up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to do this ever again. And then uh, right before going to bed, I got this email and it's just from some random Swedish guy. And it just said, I am a random Swedish guy. And, you know, I just want you to know that I love Evernote. I've been using it for a few months and it's really changed my life and like maybe so much more organized and productive and it's great. And I remember like feeling a little bit better. I'm like, oh, it's nice. Cause you know, if you like make the difference in the life of one Swede, you've accomplished something. <laughs> and then he went on to say, so I'm just writing to see if you're like looking for any investment. And so I wrote back at like 3, 10 AM. I'm like, why? Yes, we are looking for investment. And then I hit send that I didn't go to sleep. Uh, and then 20 minutes later, I was on a Skype call with him. And two weeks after that, he wired us half a million dollars. And Who is just, this like, random Swedish guy? So we've never disclosed him. So he's a real person. He's asked to like not be disclosed, but he's a real person. He he like saved the company. He, like Swedish guardian angel. So, yeah, he's you know he's a guy who just loved Evernote and happened to have half a million dollars that he didn't mind you know. That's what does. Yeah. Um, and yeah, saved the company completely. Um, and it was I mean and, and even that's like. That's just luck. I mean, it's like, it's having made a decent product. It's being up at 3 a.m. But at the end of the day, like, it's also like this person happened. And had I gone to bed 10 minutes earlier, it probably wouldn't have responded to that email. Because, you know, I'd, I'd have woken up and driven to the office and closed it down. I wouldn't have been, like, reading through random emails. So stuff like that happens all the time. Wow. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So you get your 500 grand, you live to fight another day, and then you go on to raise all of this money, and you're a unicorn, and everybody's talking about you guys are going to go public. And then, like, you get to 2015, and there's, like, Evernote, the first dead unicorn. There's all these headlines that say you guys are toast. What happened? Well, that's just hype cycle. So there wasn't actually events there. That's just, like, you know, if you're going to be super popular and you're going to be the darling for a while, then it's going to come around and, you know, you're going to get torn down and then you're going to be popular again. So that is something that we'd like, we anticipated and it wasn't that big a deal. At that point, the fundamentals of the business were, you know, were good, but everything was slowing down. Like, and it was harder and harder to like raise more money. Like things were starting to slow. And I remember back then saying like talk thinking and saying like, yeah, this is why I kind of hated the whole unicorn stuff to begin with, because like it was obvious from the start that, that we were going to end up here. And it definitely made like re- recruiting harder. It made retention harder. Morale really suffered because of that. So it was, you know, it was very much because like of a, what? Because of the negative press or the whole cycle of like having gone from hyper growth and everyone loves you and you're like you're in the ray of sunshine to now you're not that anymore. But because you're not that anymore, it's like now it's like grossly exaggerated the other way. Now it's like you're failing and everything's going wrong. And because you had gone from zero to what 150 million customers, right? Yeah, I and mean, then and we were still. Well, I think. When I left, it was like 200 million, and it's more than that now, I think. But I, I don't. When you retain sanity, when you go from hyper growth to like sanity, it it feels terrible, right? It, because you're no longer like the best thing ever. Uh, so yeah, so it was hard. I mean, it was. And it's not like it was the media's fault. It was like that whole cycle of just like going from massive hype to reality. It's it, it's like a big slowdown. Uh, and you know, the Silicon Valley culture doesn't do anything. Like, there's never the correct amount of reaction, right? Everything is over, like overreaction or underreaction. So obviously, if you're going to go from being too much, the next step is to be too little. You're not going to ever be. You know, the porridge is never going to be just right. The bed's never going to be just right. <laughs> just thinking about that kind of that cycle, the up and then the downslope. I mean, you were continuing to grow, but it was was it a question of had you tried to do too much? There's just a lot of bad habits that get baked into the system when you grow that fast. For one, like almost everyone in an executive role, with one or two you know exceptions of like actually competent people that we had hired, like for for almost all of us at Evernote, myself included, Evernote was like ridiculously the biggest thing that we'd ever done. Like the current jobs that we were in were the biggest jobs we've ever had, which is kind of terrifying. I mean, it's great, but it's also like, if that's literally true of everyone, it, it's kind of scary. So there was definitely a time where we were like, okay, we need to actually bring some people in who have who know what they're doing at big company scale. How does that change the culture? So these are all like, these are the growing things that you have to, you know, that you have to wrestle with. And, and wrestling with those in the spotlight uh, is, is tough. And you left in 2015. The original plan was Right from the beginning, I talked about uh, Evernote, building Evernote as a 100-year startup. We kept saying 100-year startup. You know, we wanted something that outlives us. And I would say part of that means that I have to find the next CEO. Like, it's my job to find the person who's going to be a better CEO because I can't be a CEO for 100 years. Don't want to be. I was comfortable with that idea, but I never, like, put, I never put a time on it. I didn't know if, if that was, like, in six months or in 20 years. And so around 2015... I talked to the board and I decided like, okay, it's time to like find a successor. So let's, let's hire a president. I would stay on a CEO and then we would have someone kind of run day-to-day operations for a year or two. And then I would, you know, then this person would become the CEO. So we did a president search. 
but we just couldn't like it's very hard it's much harder to recruit a president than a CEO like the really impressive people just want to be CEO so after doing that for a year we said fine let's just find a CEO and then the CEO will come in and run all the kind of business stuff the data operations and I was still hoping and the plan was that I would stay involved with the product like I would sort of be I would be the executive chairman I would uh, kind of head up the, the product thinking and so we, we found a great CEO uh, Chris and then you know it just turned out like that me staying sharply involved just wasn't going to work it was just like way too awkward I wound up leaving as CEO, I think, in 2015, and then I stepped down as the executive chairman uh, about a year ago. So I think, yeah, sometime in 2016. And then you became a venture capitalist. Yeah, so I, I, well, I became a VC when I, when I left as CEO uh, for two years. I was a managing director at General Catalyst. Uh, and I was kind of thinking, well, I, I'll get my like, hands-on product fix from doing product stuff. I'd ever know if I would get my like, big thinking, investment, broad view fix from being a VC. That was, that was kind of the plan. How was it going from the entrepreneur who has to go out and talk to now people like you on the other side of the table who have the, the money and are trying to pick the winners? Uh, it was great um, and weird. Uh, food was better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'd obviously been around VCs for basically what feels like my whole life at this point, but always either as an angel investor or as an entrepreneur, and this was like kind of being on the other side. And uh, in many ways, it's the best job in the world. Like just literally, like it's an amazing job. It you're literally just paid to learn as much as possible about interesting subjects, and you can talk to anyone. Like anyone, everyone wants to talk with you, and so like it's great. If you're just like intellectually curious, you're motivated by learning, you want to like be around talented people. Like it's the greatest job in the world. To me, it felt like I wasn't actually none of that was actually doing anything. Like it wasn't like that. That to me didn't register in my brain as work, and like I wanted to be a bit more hands-on, uh, which I thought it would be. I never know it, but, but that didn't work out. And so I was just kind of adjusting to saying, okay, well, maybe at this point, you know, I don't actually need to be hands-on. I can just, I can just do the VC thing. And then right around, like basically on election day, like with this election in November is when I decided, okay, like, no, I, I still need to do something that's like more, more actively positive for the world. I kind of decided if like one more, like let's actually build something, not just, not just invest. So how did the election change your approach to investing, especially when you talk about, you know, Trump, the kind of narrative he sold was, oh, our jobs are going overseas, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when really most of those jobs have been eliminated by automation and AI and automation go hand in hand. So I'm not a political person. There's this moment that probably everyone who's relatively smart has at some point, uh, probably pretty young. Like, I think I remember the first time this happened to me when I was a kid you kind of have this experience where like there are no adults where you sort of realize like, oh, right, there is nobody else. You know, maybe like in college or something. And up until then, you're like, well, I'm just a kid, but there's all these like smart people who like actually know what they're doing and they're taking care of something. And then at some point you're just like, no, that's it. There's no, there's no actual smart, competent people. Like it's just everyone is kind of equally clueless and it's just sort of all us on the planet doing stuff. And so I just had that realization like in spades where like, for years, I've been like very much enthusiastic about AI and automation and self-driving cars and all of this stuff. And I was like, yeah, of course, I know it's going to make massive social disruption and people are going to lose a lot of jobs. And like, that's important. But like, that's not my job to think about. Like, there's there's adults who think about that stuff. Government, Someone else will think, think about tank, that. Right. Like, yeah, that'll take care of itself. And then somewhere around election day, I had that feeling again where I'm like, nope, there's no there's no adults. It's our job to think about all of it. And so let's just start thinking about it. And I really didn't like the the fact that it, it seemed at that point that the world was just like closing in. Like I very much a you know international 
person. I love traveling. I, we did a ton of it at Evernote. I have like built many awesome things in different countries. Like I, 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 I wanted that to continue. So I kind of thought let's, we need to have like a more active answer for a positive vision of the most talented people everywhere in the world doing cool things together. It just wasn't happening. I wanted to be more active in, in doing that. What was your worst day of work? We won't count the first five, your $500 startup, but in yeah, four companies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we had some bad days. The day that I thought I'd have to shut down Evernote was, was pretty bad. I guess I was at home at the time, so it wasn't really at work. I remember at Evernote, uh, I forget exactly when. It was a few years ago, but we, uh, we detected that there was a, there was a big hacking attempt uh, that we were being hacked. To respond, we wound up deciding to sort of take the maximum possible response, which is we shut the whole system down and we deactivated every password and we forced everyone to like make new passwords to sign in just because like we couldn't guarantee that passwords hadn't been stolen. That's a pretty big uh, move for it was yeah, yeah it was big and and like we had to make that decision within like a few minutes and that was very hard because I I knew what that would mean we were, it was basically like you know we had at least a hundred million users at that point and it was like it was like it was like pulling the plug on a running computer and then like plugging it back in and like watching it boot up again and hoping that it all boots correctly. But hoping 100 million ever. people re- choose to reboot. Yeah, and, and, and we knew we would lose users, and we did. Uh, it was super painful, and then, and then we had to work for you know, weeks just to make sure that everything was plugged, and we got a bunch of bad press about it, but it, it was the right decision. And then, and then nobody else did it, which was really pissed me off, because like afterwards, like 10 other companies got hacked, and, and many of them didn't even disclose it, let alone, and I don't think anyone like literally reset all the passwords, and that's what keeps these things going. So we like feel like we did the right thing we like paid the price for it and then like everyone else was like we're just not going to take it as seriously uh, but that was very that was tough there was a lot of bad press that was you know just personally difficult but uh, look on balance like if i compared the good days and the bad days it's like overwhelmingly good days so you know at, some, at one point i got like relatively prominent as you know as a ceo would ever know it and then once that happened i started getting invited to like all of these you know ceo dinners you're on the list yeah i'd hang out with you know fancy people with you know that were actually much more important than i was and whenever there's like a dinner and there's like a bunch of like tie-in ceos sitting around a table inevitably if it was just the ceos inevitably what would happen is at some point someone would be like ah you know being a ceo it's really it's really lonely and the person next to me would be like yeah it's it's really lonely and like no one really understands and it's like it's difficult and it's really lonely and then it would like go around the table and the next person would be like yeah yeah really lonely very lonely and then it would just go around the table and it would, it would, it would get to me and i would be like boy yeah it's really lonely and it's difficult it, it, but it beats having a job right like it beats working <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, everyone yeah, would laugh and like that's kind of how yeah. i feel about it like yeah there's many terrible days but like it beats working it's still the it's still the best thing in the world and um just circling back to all turtles where does that come from? Ah, so it's uh, it's from Turtles All the Way Down. So it's a Bertrand Russell, I think, Bertrand Russell reference. Uh, the idea is Bertrand Russell is giving a lecture about like the structure of the of the Earth and the solar system, and afterwards everyone claps. But uh, well, the way the story goes, this old lady gets up because all all old stories are horribly misogynist. So an old lady gets up and says, "Ah, what you said is all wrong. Everyone knows that the Earth is actually uh, uh, you know resting on the back of an elephant, which is uh, standing on the back of a giant turtle." Bertrand says, well, if that's true, madam, then what's the turtle standing on? And the woman says, oh, everyone knows that. It's turtles all the way down. Um, so that's the reference. So it's the idea is right. it's whatever you build, you are standing on the shoulders of the people who came before you. You're helping the next generation. It's, you know, it's turtles all the way down. Plus, elephants stand on turtles. So it was like the obvious sequel to me after Evernote. And one of the companies I saw that's here is Do Not Pay. 
Mm-hmm. Which I think is that a British company? Yeah, 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 yeah. They basically help you get out of parking tickets. Well, it started with parking tickets. It's an AI robot. Uh, sorry, it's a robot lawyer, an AI lawyer, uh, and starts challenging parking tickets. But really, it's a bureaucracy fighter. So the idea is like the little guy is um, is really victimized by bureaucracy. Parking tickets, fines, landlord disputes, like all the stuff. Like if I get it, it's fine because like, you know, I have lawyers and I know how to deal with it. It doesn't threaten me. But, you know, the little person gets it and they're just like, they're really victimized. They don't do it in time. There's fees. They don't know how to respond. It's like a major, very significant thing. So they now, you know, when you get hassled by bureaucracy, instead of like you dealing with it, you let the, the robot deal with it. And it turns out robots are great at bureaucracy, like much better than your landlord is. <laughs> so uh, I think it's a brilliant insight. Uh, and we, we, we've got a, that's a common theme at Old Turtles. Like we want to build things that favors like the little over the big. Like we want, we want to favor the the deserving over the established. Like almost everything we do has has that element. And then when when we free these people from having to like convince us that it could be a ten billion dollar outcome, which it could be, but we don't really care. And you know they don't have to worry about how to make companies and make all of the stupid but very difficult company mistakes. They just just focus on making important products. Like we think we can we think we can move the world forward a little bit that way. If you had one piece of advice to give twenty five year old Phil, about doing what you're doing, starting businesses, etc. If I had a time machine and I could like go back in time and like talk to a 25 year old Phil, it's like first thing I'd say is I'd be like, dude, just don't worry about it, because in 25 years you're gonna have a time machine. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's all gonna be okay. <laughs> and then probably the second piece of advice is I would be like, build Evernote first, like build it before the first two companies, like do the thing that you want before doing the thing that you think other people may want. Why? Because I think like the world is so much more of a meritocracy at this point, especially, well, at least the tech world. Uh, Meaning that like, because of social media, because you have almost perfect information sharing, if you build a product that's really great, like everyone's gonna know about it and there's basically no friction to getting it. That just wasn't the case, you know, a long time ago when you could build a mediocre product and just really double down on the marketing and distribution. Like here, you really can't. So the most important thing to do is to build a great product and do it as quickly as possible. So how are you going to do that? Well, especially if it's your first one, you're much more likely to build, to make it great if you're building it for yourself, because then at least you have like a very efficient testing cycle. As long as you can be honest, like as long as you know, it's getting better every day, you can iterate much faster. When we were building things for, you know, for, for big banks and governments, like we would release a product and then how would we know whether it whether it got better, you know, we'd have to wait for a year to get product feedback. So like our cycles were a year at Evernote, our cycles were like, you know, two hours, we could like build something. And if it didn't feel right, we would change it. And if it didn't feel right, we would change it because we didn't have to wait a year to like gather feedback because it was for us. So I think very practically, like if you build something for yourself, it's going to get to great faster than if you build for something not yourself because you can iterate faster and that's your best chance of success. So I think so do something that you're actually interested in rather than like, I am going to make a company that someone will find useful. I have to kind of just figure out what that is. Do something that you yourself, especially your first company later, you should, you know, go on and do other stuff. But like the first one, I would say do something that you, that's for where you are the target audience so that you know when the product is actually getting better so that you can iterate on it faster. Also have a time machine. that's it for another episode a big thank you to phil who i was impressed with before i mean he founded evernote 
Uh, but the fact that he founded and sold his first company at 16 is pretty cool. When I was 16, I was making sandwiches at Togo's for 4.75 an hour. But hey, he made computers, I made sandwiches, and we both end up in San Francisco talking about artificial intelligence. The world is a wonderful place. Uh, I do have one request. If you like what you're hearing, please stop into Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. It helps other people find us and generally helps the cause. Uh, so just take a minute. I'd really appreciate it. And that is all. Until next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.